0: We'll mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Welcome to the podcast of tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 112, released on April 3rd, 2019. Today we are going to talk about the copyright directive, about Spotify that may or may not be the next Netflix, about Scooter Wars of the past and much more. As for today's pre-recorded interview, we have prepared a conversation with Nicolas Brousson, the co-founder and CEO of Blablacar. I am your host, Andre Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how is it going?
1: Hi, Andre, everything's great. Glad to be back on the podcast.
0: Yep, same here. Nice and sunny weather uh, here in Amsterdam, and I think it's pretty sunny from what I can see on the webcam uh, up in Edinburgh.
1: It is. It is. Really enjoying it becoming warm again.
0: And next week, uh, you just said uh, before we started recording that you are going to Slovenia. And I just checked the weather for you. It's going to be like plus 20, plus 18. You're getting summer early this year.
1: Just as it should be. It's going to be incredible. I can't wait.
0: <laughs> Perfect. So how did the last week go in terms of deals? What was the biggest one?
1: Yeah, so the biggest deal last week went to fintech again, where the British-based payment processing startup, Marqueta, has raised a $250 million Series E round led by Co 2 Management. And this round values the company at $2 billion.
0: So we might as well exclude uh, fintech companies from the biggest deal of the week in the future just because it would be just one industry every single time.
1: (laughs) I think that's fair.
0: Okay, so we're going to have two nominations now. Biggest fintech deal of the week and then uh, the biggest deal of the week outside of fintech. Starting next week, let's do that. Sounds good to me. Right. Moving on to the news, I wanted to talk, I'm sorry for this, but I wanted to talk again a little bit more about the copyright directive, uh, which was passed, as we all probably know by now, uh, last week. So uh, do you know that feeling Natalie when you just when you are sitting alone you're at home or you're at work and you're reading something and then even though you know that there is nobody to answer you just can't help but shout something like you got to be freaking kidding me. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? This this is exactly what I did the other day when I read the title of a piece on the Verge and it was titled 10 European lawmakers say they voted against pivotal copyright amendment by accident.
1: Yeah, this is absolutely incredible. That this if
0: this is not surreal, I do not seriously know what is. So here's what happened. Uh, you might remember that uh, the actual copyright directive was voted in favor with a 74-vote difference. So these 10 people would not have changed anything. But before that final vote, there was also a last-minute amendment. And this amendment would potentially allow the MEPs to take a further vote on whether to include the controversial Article 11 and 13 into the directive. And by the way, the articles apparently were renamed into Articles 15 and 17, respectively. So I'm not really sure how we should call them now, even. so I will just keep the old numbers for consistency. So according to the official voting records of the European Parliament, 13 members of European Parliament said that they accidentally voted wrong in that particular amendment. Ten of these uh, uh, members of parliament said that they accidentally rejected the amendment, two accidentally approved, and one said that he did not intend to vote at all and voted by accident. I'm not sure how that is possible, but yeah, whatever. So if these MEPs did not screw up with the voting, uh, some more voting would have happened on Articles 11 and 13, and there is a chance, though of course we cannot say anything for sure, that the result would have been different. And maybe the two worst articles uh, would have been excluded from the directive if this didn't happen. So we will never know, of course, what would have happened uh, differently. Same as we will never know whether the whole thing was actually an accident at all. The leader of the Swedish Pirate Party, uh, Magnus Andersson, uh, he even suggested on Twitter that the 10 uh, members of parliament changed their vote post-factum only to get away with what they had done. And this, to me, this actually looks like an extremely abusable uh, sort of uh, arrangement. You can just come forward after a vote uh, and you say, no, I wanted to vote differently. And then you get your vote changed, actually, in the records. But the most frustrating thing here is that these changes have no effect on the directive. They have no effect on the outcome of the vote. Although it is possible to change the vote, the outcome never changes, and that's how the European Parliament works. So one way or the other, we are now stuck with the directive no matter uh, what amendments uh, were or weren't uh, voted for. Since we are stuck with the directive, we need to think about what happens next, and I will link in the show notes to a solid, very nice piece by Danny O'Brien, the international director of Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the piece is all about what we can expect and what we should think of in the future couple of years, I suppose. So he's making several good points, and I also wanted to highlight a couple of them. First of all, in a couple of years' time, what we're going to end up with is 27 different laws implementing the copyright directive in different ways. This is how the European Union directives work, as you might remember. And uh, with the way that the copyright directive is written, there is a lot of space for interpretation. I think I mentioned it already many times on this podcast. So When all the countries introduce their own versions of the copyright uh, law, it's going to become ridiculously difficult to navigate this landscape. And I wouldn't be too surprised, I have to say, if some internet companies just pull out of the market completely because it's way, way, way too complicated. But at the same time, we need to realize that the big internet companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons of this world, they are actually extremely unlikely to fight the regulation further. It's just not in their best interest, if you think about it. Uh, These companies can afford a blanket licensing agreement with rights holders that would spare them the palaver of upload filters. The smaller, independent players, on the other hand, would not be able to afford uh, to pay for this kind of licensing, which means less competition to the entrenched big players. So the only side that ultimately loses in this situation is ourselves, uh, the people of the internet, the customers, the consumers. And there is not much we can do right now, as far as I understand. I would say, as I already said last uh, time, that startups and everyone working in the tech industry should now try their best to influence their local lawmakers and make sure that their country adopts as soft a version of the directive as possible. And also, Danny finishes his piece uh, with a call to support various uh, digital rights groups that can organize more of a structural opposition to the regulation. And I mean, I guess he's right. Uh, Myself, I've never been much of an activist, but maybe it's a it's a good time to look into it now and see what can be done on the local level. Now, Natalie, I wanted to ask you first, what do you think about these changes in votes? Do you think these people are sincere in this?
1: You know, I think it's an incredible cop-out. It's kind of these MEPs are trying to kind of play both sides of the argument, and I think it's highly irresponsible. And it also really underlines the importance of knowing who your MEP is. And if you have the opportunity to vote in May, to really take that chance. If this is something that you care deeply about, Andre and I, we can't vote this upcoming election, but it is so important that tech companies get involved because these decisions, even so casually enacted like this really affect all of us and anyone making content or using content online.
0: I have to say, though, that uh, from what I can see, it is irresponsible, of course, from MEPs to screw this up. But also, it seems like the whole voting procedure is uh, a little bit convoluted and complicated and way too complex. And apparently, this uh, last amendment was like an oral amendment, which means it just was said last moment that, yeah, now we're going to vote not for the directive, but first uh, for the amendment. And then the people who wanted to reject the directive ended up rejecting the amendment. That's what I understand, at least.
1: I, I don't give them any excuse there. <laughs> this is their job and they should they should understand kind of all the ramifications of the decisions they make and it really shows the impact that every vote counts and every action that you do as an individual citizen to influence or lobby your elected representatives can have a significant weight. So let this be a reminder to us all
0: Indeed. So we have a couple of more years of uh, the free Internet. So create your memes, upload your memes while you can uh, share them with us. We will uh, retweet the best <laughs> from the tech.eu Twitter account. So, Natalie, what uh, what was you going to talk about?
1: Yeah. So especially being as we're on a podcast right now, it might be a bit meta to talk about podcasts. But it was announced that last week Spotify acquired their third podcast company so far this year. Spotify is, of course, the Swedish music streaming platform that went public last year and something we've talked about a lot on the podcast so far. But I also wanted to look at into this as it's really interesting to see this European tech company, how it continues to evolve and grow. And it looks like they're following the Netflix playbook here, first as a platform for existing content and then moving into developing their own original programming. But as I'll discuss later, they're far from the first European streaming platform to get into original podcasting. After Spotify went public last year, many were wondering what Spotify's next move was going to be. And there was considerable speculation that the company would get into video, or if they were going to go somewhere beyond music. But in February, Spotify CEO Daniel Ek wrote a post entitled Audio First, where he outlined the company's future vision. By the title, you can kind of guess where they're going here and continuing into listen content rather than video. In the post, he mentions that people spend roughly two hours a day listening to radio, and he wants Spotify to become the world's choice in radio. A key channel for the future in this, of course, is podcasting. And Spotify expects that 20% of Spotify listening in the future will be non-music. And with more original programming and more advertising opportunities, they will be able to grow faster. And as we've seen, the company is really putting their money where their mouth is. And over the last three months, Spotify has acquired three companies in the podcasting space, Gimlet, Anchor, and just announced last week, Parcast. Parcast releases original programming, mostly about the paranormal, true crime, ghosts, and the supernatural genres, which actually, when I was doing a lot of research for this story, you find this is one of the biggest and kind of most popular genres for podcasting. It
0: surprises me a lot. People love that this well.
1: kind of content. I don't know what that says about us as a society, but we'll just leave that for another time. But the details of the nitty gritty of Spotify's deal with Parcast hasn't been announced, but in their original announcement on podcasting, it was mentioned they were prepared to spend up to $500 million on acquisitions in this space, and the deal to acquire Gimlet alone was worth an estimated $300 million. Each of the companies that Spotify has acquired in this space are based in the United States, Parcast from Los Angeles, whereas Gimlet and Anchor are from New York. But what about some European firms in the podcasting space? And it's true that a considerable amount of companies making original podcast programming come from North America. And there are some suggestions as to why this is. Many cite a path dependency argument. Due to the dominance of Android phones in Europe, more than 70% of mobile in Europe is on Android. But in the US and Canada, iPhones have largely been more popular and the Apple podcast app is already pre-installed. Podcasts in Europe are largely dominated by large media companies who are very early to get into podcasting or by small independent outlets like ours who have one podcast that they're working on rather than having the studio production model as we've seen with Spotify's acquisitions. But it seems like everywhere you look, there's a new independent podcast coming out on every topic these days in Europe. So it is a very vibrant space in this market as well. While many of the podcasting companies are US-based, it's easy to forget that there's so many European companies that have been pioneering in this space. Among them is Audioboom, which is a podcast hosting, distribution, and monetization content company. They were founded in London in 2009 and went public in 2014. Today, they work with some of the biggest names in media for podcast production, but are moving a little bit away from the tech space with the announcement that this week they'll be sunsetting their mobile app for recording and podcast listening. Another European leader in this space, of course, is Deezer, the French alternative audio streaming service. They have had original podcasts on their platform since 2015. And in 2016, they produced their first original content podcast in English. They have long recognized the importance of podcasting, and late last year, they joined in partnership with Voxnest, a podcasting platform with an extensive Spanish-language podcast library. After unsuccessfully going public in 2015, some have suggested that Deezer might be a potential acquisition target for Spotify. But really, anything could happen here, and we really am not sure what's going to happen. So in terms of some other European acquisitions for Spotify, there are two kind of original content providers for podcasts that stand out to me that might be interesting for Spotify to consider. The first is Playback Media from the UK, which produces a number of original programs, mainly around sports. And another key player comes from France, and I will apologize in advance for probably butchering this name, but they're called Nouve Écouteille. They produce 13 independent podcasts in French that explore really a wide range of topics from feminism to food and all in between. And they're really beloved um, in France and in the French-speaking market. So it'll be really interesting to see where Spotify goes next and if they plan any European acquisitions. It will also seem that podcast studio model is something that has real potential in Europe and it's something that's really untapped so far. And it'd be great to see more companies getting into this space in the European market.
0: Yeah, while we're talking about European market by the way, I I think we should definitely give a shout out to the to the podcast hosting and distribution uh, platform that we host our podcast on that's uh, Acast uh, from uh, Sweden and this is also a pretty successful company I have to say they have already raised uh, let me check 67 million dollars in uh, funding and I think they are also doing very well. So Spotify might as well consider uh, get a hold of someone from their own country.
1: Definitely, and we've been very happy with acast with really all aspects of their of their production and hosting
0: yeah, It's a nice platform, and in general, I have to say that I'm very happy to see the general interest in uh, podcasts uh, going up and uh, Spotify being uh, committed to challenge uh, apple's uh, monopoly in many ways on uh, podcasting. Also, I have to say, and it's been said uh, a few times already over the past uh, few months, that uh, Apple has never really used this monopoly. They haven't really done much over the years uh, to the podcast as a genre, to the podcast as a medium. There is still no good way to get uh, Decent or even half decent analytics uh, on your podcasts. Uh, the format is still just an RSS feed with MP3 files uh, being uh, sent around. So there is definitely there is definitely a good space uh, uh, left uh, for disruption, for lack of a better word.
1: Yep, I certainly agree. But as we've seen from last week, Spotify and Apple—maybe um, here's another front for their current war of attrition.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if the two if the two are connected. <laughs> I don't think so but well on the other front there is no news. We're going to keep our eyes open. Now, moving forward in today's agenda, let us hear the pre-recorded interview taken by no one else but Natalie herself. And this is a conversation with Nicolas Bourchon, the co-founder and CEO of BlaBlaCar in France. I'm really sorry if I also keep butchering French names and words. I did not mean it. So let's listen to this one, and we're going to be back in a few minutes.
1: So in April, we're going to be featuring transport technologies on tech.eu, and it also happens to be the month where Earth Day falls. Today, we're talking with Nicolas Brisson, co-founder of BlaBlaCar. BlaBlaCar, of course, needs no introduction. It's one of our European success stories, scaling from France to reach unicorn status in 2015. Welcome, Nicolas.
2: Hello. Thanks for having me.
1: Great. So since your founding, Blah Blah has gone on to bring freedom, fairness, and fraternity to carpooling. But in doing so, your company has also had significant environmental benefits. And you've just released a new report that outlines some of these positive impacts. So was making an environmental impact one of the key rationales for establishing the company?
2: Yeah. So the, the company was actually established in uh, 2006, 2007. And, uh, and that's something sometimes people tend to forget is we've been around for a long time and we had a very, very slow beginning. And the most well-known part of the story is maybe the last like four or five years when the company was doing fundraising and obviously was pretty successful in uh, in Europe and outside of Europe. When we started that in uh, in 2006, 2007, it was right at the time when uh, Al Gore actually released his movie, Inconvenient Truth, which was about like you know, global warming and the environment. Uh, and for us, it was one of the big driver back then behind optimizing cars. It was really doing something for the environment and solving something that was pretty absurd at the time and still absurd today, which is the fact that cars are running empty. Now what happened over the years is we realized as we scaled by car in the early days and as we had to convince people to share their car and open their car to quote unquote strangers. The focus of our marketing, our positioning was not so much about the environment, even though that was part of the genesis of the company, but more around trust and how do we build trust around the, the community to allow people to share. Essentially, now that we established a community of 70 million people, it's becoming pretty much mainstream to do carpooling. Uh, we wanted to go back to that theme. And we also feel like we have a mission to communicate around that and, and explain to our community that actually they're doing something good for the environment. And part of that came through that study where essentially we wanted to really understand what's the real, because there are lots of like sometimes nonsense and marketing tricks on, um, on CO2 saving. We wanted to really get deep into understanding how much CO2 do we really save on baby car, which is what this, uh, this study is about.
1: Excellent. And is there a statistic that stands out to you? One of the environmental impacts, for example?
2: Yeah, So so you would say, I mean, intuitively, you're putting more people in car, intuitively, you would say, obviously, it's good for the environment. What you really wanted to understand was, you know, how it works out between giving more access to transport, because one of the great features of BlaBlaCar is also giving more access to passengers and drivers to essentially have low cost travel and more point of connections. So essentially, you, you ignite or you create more travelers, which from a CO2 point of view might not be good. Versus like convincing drivers to stop using their car and becoming passengers. So what was pretty striking about this study is obviously one, the impact is huge. We're talking about, you know, on a yearly basis, 1.6 million tons of CO2 saved by the community. So essentially, it's a way to say if they were not doing black, black car, they would be doing something else, either a train or their own car or a bus or something else. And they would be essentially saving 1.6 million tons of CO2. But the thing that was probably the most surprising and the, the most enlightening for us was to see that essentially we see some of that saving on BlaBlaCar, and there is lots of saving happening outside of BlaBlaCar because we change people's behavior. So lots of people told us that you for one BlaBlaCar they do on the platform, they started to do carpooling on shorter distances or with a friend or to go to work. So so to some extent, we realized that we shape people's mind to be more environmentally conscious around travel in a bigger way than what we see on
1: BlaBlaCar. That's excellent. And something also you highlight in the report is that BlaBlaCar is just scratching the surface of carpooling's potential. What is it going to take to reach greater adoption? And what are some of the things you have on the horizon to make sure it gets there?
2: Yeah, so we have two things, but you're right to say we, I mean, today we feel we're scratching the surface in the sense that, and we tend to forget that number But 75% of mobility, whether it's like long distance, so like 100 to 800 kilometers, which is pretty much what BlaBlaCar is doing today, and commuting, 75% of that is done by car. So we tend to forget that sometimes when we live in big cities where we feel like everybody is taking the subway or metro or whatnot. It's not true. 75% of mobility is by car. And most of these cars are empty. So the car occupancy on long distance is one9 Car occupancy on commuting is a 1.1. Essentially, the car is just a driver. Two things we want to do to accelerate that shift. One is becoming more of a mainstream transport platform to attract more demand. Uh, So that's one of the things we're doing by now integrating buses into BlaBlaCar. The main goal around that is to become attractive to a wider audience and not just a C2C carpooling audience, but to a wider travel audience. And we believe, and we've done quite a few tests in France and Russia now, we believe by doing so, actually, you put more supply in the marketplace, and hence you get more demand, and you get more passengers, and you have more and more carpooling actually happening. So that's one of the big levers we want to use, is becoming like a, a wider, more mainstream platform on long distance. And the other one is really to crack commuting. So commuting is the maybe the the biggest waste and consumption of CO2 in transport, is done on commuting. So those are like the, the the millions of people using their car every day, completely empty to go to work. And no one has cracked that yet. So so no one has cracked like a proper platform to enable people at scale to do carpooling every morning and every evening. We launched a product last year called Blabla Lines, really targeting that commuting, carpooling on the commuting segment. We're seeing very interesting traction. Right now it's only in France, but we plan to expand that in the coming years. And I would say that's the biggest lever, right? So so if we crack or someone cracks carpooling on this commuting segment, we'll see less car on the road, less traffic, less CO2 emission. And it's actually a, a a pretty big business to be built as well, because you're talking about like every market, whether it's France or Germany, you're talking 10, 20 million people every day using their car to go to work.
1: Yeah. And so let, let's unpack that commuting a little bit more you guys have been around for a really long time. And in that time, the transportation market and the landscape of technology involved in transportation in Europe has changed really considerably. Now we're seeing kind of the rise of e-scooters and, and new transport modes. So how are these different types of transport impacting your company? And, and what are some ways you're, you're working to, to work with them?
2: Yeah, so I would say most of the innovation, first, if we take a step back, I mean, mobility has been like a hot space an exciting space for the last four or five years, maybe maybe even more. And I believe it's going to be exciting for the next five or 10 or, or more, right? Because we're going to have autonomous car comings, We're going to have like all kinds of new services coming. We've seen e-scooters, Uber, I mean, bikes and all that stuff. I would say that most of the innovation and most of the capital right now has been on very short distances in cities, right? So, so if you look at uh, whether it's like ride-sharing, um, taxi ailing, and e-scooters and bikes and so on, it's very much confined within like the 0 to 10, maybe 20 miles radius. I think the, the longer distance space and even the commuting uh, space I described tends to be people driving their car for like 10, 20, 30 miles every morning. That space has not been disrupted yet. Right. So, so if you look at like you know, people using the car to commute like five years ago and now, it's not true that they're all going to take a taxi or e scooter or any of these new technologies that are really more like first mile, last mile type technologies. So I think that wave is yet to come, actually, really tackling the, the use of individual car and changing the behavior around individual cars to shared cars is something that we, again, we're just scratching the surface on that, I think.
1: Great. So so that that's really wonderful. And something I also wanted to speak to you about is not optional. I know you're going to an event to talk about this initiative um, very shortly to increase talent capacity in France. And not optional is something we've talked about on the podcast before. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you got involved and why this is an issue that is so important to you.
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So so if I link that to the to the story of Black Car, we decided back in, I would say, 2011, 2012, when we had the first fundraising from Excel, not to just be a French company. So it's, we really wanted to be at least a European leader or to be like a global leader on what we do. And very quickly, what it means when you want to become a European leader is you need to hire people all over Europe. And as a startup, it makes sense to offer equity and stock options to all kinds of people all over Europe. And frankly, what we realized, so so it sounds very, you know, when I describe it this way, all good, sounds very simple. And once you get to it, you realize it's very, it's absurdly difficult, actually, to give stock options to people that are not in France. For example, there's a French company. It would be the same story if you're a German company trying to go to France and the UK and so on, because none of these regulations, none of these tax rules are consistent with each other for us it was very important to share the capital of the company to share essentially to give stock options to every employee and, uh, and at least like shares to to every employee and we realized it's a huge blocker in europe to actually build european companies because you're facing like very contradictory rules in, in different countries so we've been working with investors like index who's been like, really pushing that um, that movement not optional and now they're doing more and more lobbying at the European level and in several countries to essentially make that simpler and more readable. So that's how we get involved. And um, and I'm pretty happy that it's moving. So now you, you start to at least have like different politics in different countries understand the problem. They understand it's important for startups to have access to stock options. Very often, that's a way actually to reward people when you cannot pay like a, a Facebook or a, a Google-type salary for an engineer. You reward based on stock options. And it's been going on in Silicon Valley for many years. And we need, like, I would say, a regulatory framework in Europe that makes it easy to do that at the European scale, not just a a single country scale.
1: Excellent. And it's great that initiatives like this help establish and encourage the conversation about these important issues. Absolutely. So just to close, um, what is next on the horizon for Blah Blah Car? What should we be on the lookout for in the coming months from you?
2: Yeah, I would say the two things that we touched on from a CO2 and environment point of view are aligned with our strategy. And and I would say, and that's what we, we we say internally as well, we're pretty lucky because business goals are very much aligned for us with CO2 saving goals. So basically, it's really pushing short distance, so pushing commuting and integrating more and more pro offers into Black, black Car, i.e. buses and potentially trains one day.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you. Hello, hello, hello.
0: Welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu, episode number 112, aired on April 3rd, 2019. We're back after listening to a great interview with Nicolas Bouchon, and it is time to talk about the events coming up soon. Natalie, what should we be expecting, and where are you going?
1: Yeah. So for my calendar this week, as we mentioned before, I'm off to Slovenia to take part in the City as a Lab Summit, which is all about the future of cities and autonomous driving. And it's a really interesting event, which is put on by Private Tech City, kind of this interesting sandbox to test new products where companies can come in and really kind of have this entire playground to put their autonomous driving vehicles and all different types of sensor technology in, and I'm really looking forward to that, and also to meeting a number of Slovenian startups. So look forward to sharing that with you next week. Andre, I think you're going somewhere. Also, I think you're heading to Startup Sesame Summit in Valencia.
0: Yep, I also going to a sunny place. So yeah, I will be. I will be in Valencia on the fourth and the fifth. Uh, of April, so that's uh, Thursday and Friday. If you are anywhere around and want to have a coffee and talk about anything at all, really, uh, let me know. I'm very happy to meet, and I'm really looking forward to the event itself, where I'm going to be moderating a panel about The mobility companies, and uh, I mean, I'm going to talk about scooters in my recommendation (laughs) today again. So, and I'm I'm really, really, really looking forward to talking about this on stage as well as my favorite topic.
1: Andre on the podcast is copyright directive and scooters. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Well, if you're not going to be in Valencia or Slovenia, if you want to set your calendar to something also interesting in the mobility space. April 9th and 10th in Berlin, there is the Accessible Transport for Berlin Challenge, which is hosted by Toyota and Beta Pitch. And this is going to be held at Beta House, their new um, venue in New Köln. And they're putting this urban mobility competition, let startups kind of shape the future of public transport systems in Berlin and develop mobility solutions to improve the lives of those who are disabled, elderly, or visually impaired. So I've personally been involved in two startups in the space. So it's something that's very close to my heart and something I think you should definitely check out. There'll be 10 startups pitching on April 9th and 10th. And those startups, actually, the winning companies from that event actually will have their solutions implemented by Toyota. So really exciting to see what comes out of that. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, check out the event section of our website and do, if you have any suggestions to add, let us know at the link in the show notes.
0: Great, perfect. Now, let's talk about recommendations. And as I just said, I'm going to talk a little bit about Scooter Wars. It's a great day today. I get to talk about uh, both my favorite topics, about copyright directive first, now about scooters, electric or otherwise. So the piece I wanted to recommend today uh, was it was run uh, on a Fast Company, and it is called The Scooter Wars Are Actually a Century Old. Natalie, have you read this one yet?
1: No, not yet, but I'll be sure to check it out as soon as we're done here. So,
0: so first, let me show you something. Since, since we have a webcam on, let me just uh, show you a picture. So we are right now we're looking at a, at a photo of a woman that's uh, riding something that's quite similar to today's electric scooter. And this photo...
1: Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that. It's incredible. Yeah, this
0: photo is dated by 1916. So it was 100 years ago, and these things already existed. So it turns out that 100 years ago, vehicles that looked very, very similar to today's electric scooters also gained quite some popularity as an alternative to cars and uh, public transport. So these scooters were not electric, of course. They ran on gas, which means that they were noisy, they were smelly, they were heavy, and also they were expensive. They cost uh, back then at least 100 US dollars, which as far as I understand was a shit ton of money back at that point. And then uh, the more, uh, an an expensive model of that thing uh, cost like 400 dollars, which I think it's like half uh, half a house or something like that. But in a short while, the first uh, scooters were squeezed out uh, from the streets uh, by cars, first of all, but only to come back 100 years later in our days in much more force, more lightweight, much cheaper with no emissions. So check out the story if you like the history of engineering. It it is quite surprising. It's quite impressive actually to see what was happening back in the day.
1: Great. I'm really looking forward to that. And you know, Scooter is something that I'm really interested in. I'm excited to see the innovation in the space, but I really appreciate how it's bringing up all of these conversations about mobility, how people share the city, things that have been long overdue. And so that's something I really appreciate that scooters have brought back.
0: Yeah and apparently the whole topic of uh, sharing the city between uh, different uh, road users was actually in the very center of the conversation about these gas scooters back in 1916 and that conversation as we could have noticed uh, ended uh, with a huge win of of the cars that was actually when the speed limits in uh, in the city were uh, brought up uh, were increased and then uh, that that's what ultimately most probably led to the disappearance of these uh, first uh, first scooters but now we have really wide sidewalks and uh, now scooters can just go around <laughs> there okay i'm being cranky i'm sorry uh, natalie go ahead to uh, do, do your recommendation
1: So my first recommendation this week is the report that we mentioned in my conversation with Nicholas Brisson of Blah Blah Car, where he talks about some of the environmental impacts of their company and how they're looking at kind of these social impact and environmental impact KPIs It's something the company is going to focus on moving forward. The second recommendation I have for the week is a new podcast called Should This Exist? Especially given our focus on podcasts in the earlier segment, I thought it'd be great to introduce this one to you if you haven't heard of it yet. And it's hosted by Katerina Fake, who is the founder of Flickr, and she's a partner at GuestBC. And each episode walks through a tech company with the founder, and she unpacks it, kind of focusing around this central question of should this exist? And it's an interesting exercise and and it gives you a number of insights into the VC brain as well as getting you to think about the future of technology and how the products we build fit into it. And her interview style is really interesting. She's incredibly skeptical of everything, and she's really looking for some of the consequences and externalities of the products that are being put forward. And I'll admit that I don't agree with some of the causal paths she goes down, and she can be quite critical. But I think it's an interesting thought experiment and really, I think, telling learning experience, especially for founders. It's a tough world out there. You're going to be subject to a lot of critique, and it's interesting to kind of see it through this lens. Something I also like is that they make a transcript available for each episode and they have a high production value, which makes for very easy listening. So I encourage you to check that out if it sounds like something that would be interesting for you.
0: Okay, just as we speak, I'm actually looking up uh, this uh, podcast and uh, subscribing to it. I'm pretty sure I'm also going to not disagree uh, with some stuff because generally I think I share the more, say engineering sort of approached this if something is uh, fun to build if something is fun to play with this definitely can exist and they have nothing against it but I do understand that a bunch of people would just think that if something does not make the world uh, a better place for at least uh, some people except the actual builder uh, it might make sense to uh, use your talent and uh, use your skills a bit differently but I'm totally with the with the engineers <laughs> on this I have to say So, yeah, and I am subscribing now. Now, this is about time to wrap up today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you are not a subscriber yet, uh, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. If you're listening on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. This will help others to find the show and uh, mean a lot for ourselves. Please tell a friend or colleague about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Also, please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions and opinions at andriy at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu natalie thank you so much for joining today pleasure to talk to you as usual
1: thank you andre and for all of our listeners if you are in valencia or slovenia next week Say hi if you find us or reach out on Twitter. We're both very active on there as well. And you can always share your comments. We love to get them and get the feedback.
0: So thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week. Hopefully enjoy the good weather and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.